Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1 is where we turn this morning. Psalm 1, the very first one, and we begin a short series on what does man, or what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a biblical man? There are lots of voices that we could listen to in the world. In fact, Psalm 1 will talk about this, but what is it to be a man? What is the model? Years ago, Jay Adams, a Christian counselor, wrote, it was either in a opening chapter of a book, I don't remember where exactly he wrote it, but he asked the question discussing all these different uh, models of behavior and thinking and and conduct and even psychological or, or counseling models. He asked the question, well, change them, change them into what? Because there are a lot of different solutions that the world offers, uh, that Christians offer even, uh, that aren't always founded upon the Word of God. And we ought to look at the Word as the model, as the informer, as the one who gives us not just the stereotypes of what does it mean to be a man, because we could identify several of those just from our uh, existence, our, our experience in life, but to look at what is the archetype. What is, if you don't mind, the prototype? What is it, the standard, not just as we might have discovered it or might have maybe derided something, oh, there's your stereotypical American male. Uh, okay, what does that look like even? But what is a biblical man? What is it to be a godly man? Now, just going back to the idea of archetypes versus stereotypes, an archetype is an original pattern, I'm quoting the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies. In fact, we look at something, that's the standard, now we want to reproduce that in other things. That's our archetype. Now there is a competing idea, different different, um, definition, I suppose, of archetype, and that is something that comes from um, a psychologist, Carl Jung, that says it's a derivation of experience from humanity. It's it's a a communal or collective unconscious that we've been informed through different generations. This is how manhood ought to be, or womanhood, or what does it mean to be a child, or whatever. I'm not commenting on that. I'm talking about what is God's what is God saying about this model, and not something that we've discovered. How has it been revealed to us in the Word? I'm not talking about stereotypes. We could say, oh, there's your typical male stereotypes. You know, it, it is hopeful, by the way, for us to, to, to escape from those stereotypes because not everybody is as buff as everybody else, right? Not everybody's got muscles that are on top of muscles. And, and that's, is that what it means to be a man? Or to have the, you know, the, the um, how do you even hold things? I mean, you got the, the pipe and you have the little cup of brandy and the, and the, the nice... Um, a jacket, you know, leather and a leather jacket, or and that's what it means to be a man, or uh, one who is uh, just an adventure outdoorsman, risk taker. Uh, is that what it is to be a man? Is it to be a man, you know, family man? Real men don't cry. All these different stereotypes that we could consider. But what does God say about the matter, and what does He have to say for us in this totally mixed-up generation? A problem with, as we're going back to Jay Adams' statements, change them into what? Well, we want to go back to the Scripture. A problem we see in our life is, not just our individual life, but collective generation, is that we don't look to the scriptures enough for the daily problems of life, for the examples of what does it mean to be a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, a worker in a, in a Christian environment, a worker in a secular environment. How do we do this thing? How do we live? And we think, boy, I just wish that the scriptures would say these things. If, boy, I wish we had some kind of clue how we ought to live. Never fear. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Wait a minute. Well, I wish he told me something else because I, I read that book and I don't get it. 
Well, let's go back and look because he is very clear, very, very kind to show us what's going on here. Now, we'll look at Psalm 1. I'm going to focus especially and particularly on males, menfolk, both men and boys, because this is what, how the verse starts out. And yet, I want women to listen in on this too, uh, because it applies to women just as well as men. Uh, I'm not going to give the application so much to women other than more generic kind of thing. But if you are a married woman, consider how can I encourage this, what Psalm 1 tells us about manhood, how can I encourage that in my dear husband whom I love? And if you have children, how can you encourage this picture of, if you don't mind, maturity, not just manhood, maturity. What does it mean to be in Christ? How can you encourage your children that way? What about if you're waiting for a suitor, Mr. Wright, to come and woo you, woo your heart and carry you off? Well, you can use Psalm 1 as one of those evaluative factors or tools to say, hmm, is this guy what this verse says, what this psalm says? Because I want a guy who is going to be like Psalm 1 says. And if you're just a young girl, you can develop this mindset and practice now to put you in a good position for both now and the future. So in other words, this psalm is for everybody. It's good. It's in the God's word. And we're going to read it together. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the, Lord, of the Lord, Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now just reading through that psalm, which of those characters, contrasting the wicked and the righteous, which of those do you identify with? I would hope the righteous, right? Well, wait a minute. On what basis would you say that? Well, I'm not as wicked as those other people out there, right? Uh, Is it a relativistic morality or righteousness? Or is it something that is objective, tangible? You can see that. You can, you, if you took these, these parameters and applied them to your life, if you looked at this filter, not just applied it to other people, oh, I just wish that that person, I wish my husband would do this. What about me? Am I acting like a wicked, sinful, scoffing kind of person when I look at God's word and I say, well, what good is that? That's going to help me. Like, God, what are you doing? Why don't you just tell me something def- different or better? That's a wicked approach to Scripture. That's not a submissive, uh, contrite, uh, penitent kind of look. To consider us, no, we're the righteous people. Really? Well, we're going to see and measure ourselves against this thing, especially the men. We want to say, okay, am I a righteous man? Can I receive this blessing? Because it says, how blessed is the man? How blessed is that male, uh, mature uh, person, male adult? Well, can I receive that blessing? Do I see that blessing in my life? We, he, we see in these verses a stark contrast between what the righteous people do and what the wicked do. And we use different terms for the wicked, but we see that contrast both in what they pay attention to, the livelihood in their, uh, or the, the prosperity, the, the way they enjoy life, and then what do we have to look forward to in the future, which is judgment. And is it a good judgment, you know, judged righteously, uh, or judged for rewards, or judged for 
punishment, condemnation. So we see a stark contrast all throughout here. But here it says, how blessed, how blessed. We can see as Jesus in his own Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, said, blessed is the man, or blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the whatever, peacemakers. It's beatitudes, right? Here is a blessing. Here is a statement. This is the guy who is fortunate. This is the guy who is happy. This is the guy who is is objectively satisfied in these things, who has this joy in the Lord. Um, in other words, this is a good thing. You know, how cursed is the man who did? No, this is how blessed. This is a, a thing that we ought to look forward to. There are many examples of this throughout the, the Psalms, and you just look for things like how blessed or, oh, um, well, blessed is. For example, in, in verse 12 of Psalm 2, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is our Lord Jesus. Uh, Taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Wait a minute. Can you take refuge in Yahweh and then you take refuge in the Son of God? What is that indicating? Maybe that the Son of God is Yahweh. Perhaps. Uh, Psalm 40. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who strand a falsehood. So many different examples in Scripture that we can see this is a good thing. This is a desirable aspect of life to be blessed. Well, what does it mean? What does it look like then? How blessed is the man who, and we have three different descriptions or, or characteristics, actions, if you don't mind, of this godly, blessed man. And again, these are evaluative tools for us. Now, we, we're pretty good at evaluating other people, right? Let me get that little speck out of your, light, your, light, your eye while my you know, big stick is, is causing problems. For me, I don't recognize it. This, I, I'm used to it, right? Got it taken care of. No, we want to help other people only insofar as we have helped ourselves. Judge yourselves first, and then you'll be able to help other people, Matthew 7 would say. So as you're, as you're considering these different characteristics in verse 1, it's me first. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I mean, we're not talking about other people so much. It is me. This is the man who is blessed, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There are three different examples, and we have... Uh, a set of three different terms or, or actions even, walk, stand, sit. We see counsel, way, and seat. We see wicked, sinners, and scoffers. You see these three all over the place throughout here. And blessed is a man who has nothing to do with these things. Nothing. We don't want that in our lives. We don't listen to these things. Uh, there are different ways that we could unpack this, but the idea is walking, standing, sitting. Walking has to do, and walking in the council. So this has to do with your mind. You're listening to outside voices, outside voices that, that always give advice. Everybody gives advice. It's hard even to find objective news. I mean, just, right, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Everything is interpreted. Everything is subjective. Everything has an opinion, has an agenda. It seems like if you can find a source of news or whatever that is, is unbiased, well, it's not. So just be careful. Just know that. But if you read a certain newspaper, you know it's going to slant, not that way, to the left or, or slant this way or, or try to, it's just, it's very hard. But to listen, to walk in the counsel of these wicked people, that we should be very careful not to walk or to fashion our, our livelihood, our conduct after the counsel, after the advice, after the standards, after the, the things that are important to these wicked people. 
Well, they're not so bad as, as that, are they? I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, they have their rough edges and so forth. But no, they're wicked. Can you just call them what they are? They are those who are against God. They're bent away from Christ. They're bent away from his word. And they're offering a solution. Well, if you don't mind, identifying a problem that isn't quite the problem and then giving a solution that isn't quite the solution to a problem that isn't the real problem. And what does that get us? Not very far in advancement towards salvation and sanctification. We want to be careful about the counsel that we receive. Do you remember Job, Job 29? Job had this great life before his suffering and so forth that fell upon him. And he said, you know, this is Job 29, 21. To me, when he went to the city gate, he went down and sat down. And to me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. Because Job was a godly man and he gave judgment according to God's word, God's revelation. And he said... Um, other times earlier in Job, Job 21, 16, Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand, the wicked people. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. I don't listen to their stuff. I listen to what God has to say. Again, these wicked people are those who are evildoers. They are wicked, per, wicked persons. They're bent toward wickedness. They're impious, just irreverent, right? Godless people. So let's listen to them, shall we? And when we're Christian folks, let's go to the world and let's, let's find out what they have to say. no. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, it says don't stand in the way of sinners. Not, you know, bar the door kind of thing, but stand in the pathway of sinners. Don't stand and, and commiserate with them. Don't, even if you don't mind, identify with them or associate with them. There's an example in Acts. Remember when Acts, Acts 2 verse 14, Pentecost, you have the, the apostles and others uh, speaking in tongues and you have the other people over here saying, well, they're drunk and all this kind of stuff. They're they're Drunk on new wine and so forth. No, that's not what's going on. Peter, Acts 2.14 says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. So he, instead of you know, separating himself, I'm kind of embarrassed of those people too. Oh boy, they're just out of hand. He says, no, I'm with them and let me tell you what's going on here. And he went on to explain. So that idea of associating with or identifying with, not just listening to them and imbibing their stuff, but then saying, yeah, they're right. They've got something good going on here. And you identify with them. There is an example in Second uh, Chronicles that the Second Chronicles 11, verse 13, Moreover, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him from all their territories. This, again, the idea of association, identification, support. They're my people. That's what I identify with. Um, in, also in Second Chronicles 34, Josiah, good king. Think of Josiah, good fella. Josiah the king stood in his place and cut a covenant, or made a covenant before Yahweh. This is 2 Chronicles 34, 31 and following. Uh, to walk after Yahweh. He made a covenant to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with his soul to do the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Moreover, so he's standing up with the Lord. But he says, moreover, he made all who, are with, all who are present in Jerusalem and Benjamin. So the territory to the north of Jerusalem, Benjamin, or actually Benjamin is. Anyway, uh, all these people around to stand with him. You all come over here and you better make yourself allied with God. You ally yourself with me and us both with God. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. So again, we're talking about listening, walking, directing your paths uh, according to the counsel of the wicked, identifying with them, standing with those people, the way of sinners, the 
the, the method of, of action, the, what their standards of conduct and so forth, this is, yeah, we're going to do that because that sounds prudent. That makes me help me to fit into the world because I don't want to look outside. I don't look weird in this world. I want to fit in with these people. But wait a minute. Who are these people? They're sinners. And we think, well, that's kind of rude, isn't it? We don't use that term around here anyway, do we? Sinners. No. These are the fallible ones. You think, well, but they, they sound pretty good. They're foolish. They're, they're faulty. They don't, they're, it's like uh, uh, the Babylonian or Assyrian king said, you're, you're treating Egypt like you're going to rely or lean upon a bruised reed or something that's going to pierce your hand because you're relying on the wrong thing. These are those who are wicked Again, using that earlier term, but those who are sinful, those who have uh, an orientation away from God, these who are uh, following after offensive things, they're, they're engaged in wrongdoing, they are missing the target. We have both an Old Testament Hebrew word and a Greek word that has the idea of you know, you're shooting an arrow and it just misses the target, just wrong. It's just, it, they're, they're aiming at something, I guess, but they don't, miss, they don't hit it. They're, they're wrong. They, they're off. They lost the way. And you're going to follow after them? You know, if, if a blind man follows a blind man, both are going to fall into the pit, Jesus said. No, don't be like that. Don't follow or don't stand in the way of sinners. Thirdly, he says, don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, we can think about, we can imagine this, I suppose. Um, walking, standing, sitting, we see that not a progression, this is a regression, where you're on the path and you start following this path and you say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to kind of spend some time with these people. These are my people. They, they understand me. They've got me, got my back. You know, those church people over there, they don't know what they're talking about. They're so uptight and, and rude and whatever. Uh, but these are my people. And you stand with them and now you're sitting down with them. Now this idea of sitting and the seat, uh, we often think, that's exactly what it is, sitting in a seat and sitting down in a chair, which, okay, let's carry that analogy forward. You are reclining with them. You're just finding your comfort with them. You are saying, you know, I'm, I'm relaxed during them. I can let my guard down. I can just do whatever. They, because I, they're, they're, they're telling me good stuff. They're telling me life. You're sitting in the seat of scoffers. You are not in a good situation. You have imbibed this wrong philosophy, this wrong worldview, if you don't mind, of life. And where has that gotten you? It's gotten you in a trap. You remember Galatians 6, 1, those who are in any trespass or caught and in this kind of thing. I am here. I'm ensnared. I don't see a way out. I don't know what, this, what the solution is, but I don't even need a solution. This is, a, this is pretty good around here. There's a saying, this is good for men especially, but for anybody, that men don't see the light until they feel the heat. Men don't see the light until they feel the heat. Until something get, begins to be uncomfortable they won't acknowledge, boy, I'm in a tough spot here. How did I get into this situation? And it's not something that you just fell into. No, you were walking in the path, excuse me, walking in the counsel of the wicked. You were standing in the way of the sinners. And now you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. What does it mean to be a scoffer? We'll come back to this idea of sitting and seat in just a moment. But a scoffer is one who is a derisive, just an angry person, one who sneers contemptuously, not somebody you really enjoy being with. And yet, we're with them. How'd that happen all of a sudden? You know, somebody who has uh, to scoff is an expression of scorn, just uh, derision, um, uh, you know, cutting things down, uh, horrible, horrible situations, which, if you don't mind, this is free. Uh, you can take, you can judge me for it later. But in the Muppets Christmas Carol, okay, you with me? In the Muppets Christmas Carol, the two people that come to warn Ebenezer Scrooge, you know the story, right? The two people, it's not like Bob Marley, it's 
whoever they are, brothers, they come and warn Ebenezer Scrooge about, hey, you're going to have three ghosts coming. Anyway, all this stuff. But the two people who do it are the ones who are the derisive, scornful old men in the regular Muppet stuff. It's just an interesting, why'd they do it that way? Because these are the ones who have, have, want nothing to do with correction. They're all about derision, contempt, scorn, scoffing. But in the Muppet Christmas Carol, a story of redemption, a story of grace, these people come and warn him. And Ebenezer is warned. That's free. Now this is what you pay for. Okay, so they don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Those who, like the, the adulteress, uh, Proverbs 30 and verse 20, this is the way an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says... I've done no wrong. What? Leave me alone. I'm happy. And just a scornful scoffing at righteousness, scoffing at whatever seems to be prudent. Those who are scoffing at the Lord, two different examples of scoffing at, at our Lord, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, Luke 16 and verse 14. Or those who were standing before Christ at the cross, scoffing at, at Jesus saying, oh, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Another example of scoffing could be, could be at the end of Romans chapter 1 when you consider these horrible people, these, the, the ultimate expression of depravity, Romans one thirty two. They know the righteous requirement of God. It's not like it's a mystery. It's not like, well, we didn't know you're not supposed to kill people or steal, people, steal things or steal people or commit adultery. Or, we didn't know. You did know. You know the righteous requirement of God and th- that those who practice such things are worthy of death. But they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is a scoffing, scorn-ridden, derisive, contemptuous character. And that's where we happen to be if we're not following after God's prerogatives here. One other idea, now put this into your your brain bucket and, and think about it. To sit in a seat is one idea, one understanding of this thing. Another way to understand this, and it works in the Hebrew just as well as anything, is that it's not just sitting down, it is dwelling it is residing, putting, I mean, forwarding your mail. This is where I live now. A, a, a residence, a long-term occupation. This is my habitation. This is my home. And to, to dwell in the dwelling place, if you don't mind. And, and both of these can work. In fact, this word seat is the word based on the root of sit, which is in modern Hebrew, a moshav, a place where you, it's a community. It's a collective community, and it's a, there's a reason why they do it. When we lived in Israel, we lived in a moshav, and it was just a bunch of people, and that's where we lived. We had our mail forwarded there, etc. So it's not just sitting in a seat like a, a luxury recliner or something, but you're, you're, this is where you live. This is your home. This is your people. But wait a minute. This says, how blessed is a man who does not do these things. So, oh, maybe you've been thinking, boy, that sounds pretty good to have my people. You know, the, the old song, the country western song, I've got friends in low places, Right? That's not a good thing. You're celebrating that? I mean, what in the world are you doing? Well, or it's like those people who say, you know, at least I'm, I'm, I, think, I, I think I'll be happy in hell because at least I know a lot of friends will be there. Does that break your heart to have that, those people say that? Are you serious? Are you serious? That's what you think about hell, God's holy, righteous punishment? Don't sit, don't dwell with those who are scoffers. So we see pretty stark contrast here. Blessed is a man who does not do those things. But that's what the world celebrates. Wickedness, sinfulness, scoffing at what is right and good and holy and pure and, and, uh, and godly. We need something different. Instead, we see in verse 2, 
What does this blessed person do? What does the blessed man do? His delight here is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. What a contrast. Wait a minute. So it's not just about what you do in your life. It's not just about what you, you know, what kind of people you associate with. It really is more fundamental than that. It's what do you do with God's word? Well, you know, God's word is, it's for, all. Oh, God's word is life. God's word teaches us what is God's perspective? What is God's standard of righteousness? What is God's expectation? What does God punish even in life? How does he want me to live? It's not like, uh, I remember bringing our firstborn son back from the hospital. I said, are they really letting us take this child in our car? They're not, I mean, where's the police escort? Where, where's the, the manual? You know, how do we do this thing? And I, I hopefully, I don't even ask him if, if things worked out okay. But uh, you just wonder, where, how do we know what to do? God has written it down for us. But he didn't answer this question. But if you have the foundation, if, you, if, you honor, if, you, if you're on the path, he will give you that light, that understanding, and teach you how you ought to go. His delight is in the law of Yahweh. We delight, the, the man of God, the blessed man, delights. He finds his, his joy, his satisfaction in what God has spoken. He finds this great <coughs> excuse me, contentment and uh, happiness in what God has spoken. His delight, not just like, uh, I guess it's early morning, I may as well read my Bible again. It's my, what my parents want me to do or something. No, do you delight to do it? Do you not just say, well, I better schedule it because I'll probably forget. How could you forget life? How could you forget the word of God in your daily uh, program? Your delight is in the law of Yahweh. You find that that is your life-giving uh, pleasure, if you don't mind the, the illusion, both literary and, and theatrical, this is your precious. That doesn't just lead you into evil, it leads you to life. This is what is so valuable, and everything else, forget about it. The raw fish, the whatever. You delight in God and His Word. You have His Word as your desire. You have His uh, great expectation that He has spoken to us in this way. Illustration from Fiddler on the Roof, his song, everybody knows it. If I were a rich man, you can read all the different examples that he gives. But he says, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the Eastern Wall. And I discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. That's what Tevye said. Seven hours every day to just talk about the scripture with people who are godly, uh, learned men. I want to know more of God's word. To delight in the law of Yahweh. Now, I didn't mention this, but this psalm, same as Psalm 2, does not have a superscription, which is to say, doesn't have an author identified, doesn't have a dedicatory thing or, you know, to the tune of whatever. It's just a generic psalm or unidentified un, uh, psalm. And yet, Wow. It's powerful. It is, it's like there's a reason why it's the first psalm. But the question comes, when he talks about the law of Yahweh, is he talking about the Mosaic legislation, the law, right, the, 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 uh, the regulations and so forth? Is he talking about the law, which we would talk about the Torah, the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Is he talking about that? Or, if you don't mind, which I think I'll affirm this, that it's all the instruction. Torah just means, it doesn't just mean law. It means instruction. What is God speaking? How is he teaching us? And we can say, this is God's direction for my life. I delight in the direction, the instruction, the teaching, the doctrines of God. This is my life. And I draw near to that. And I, as the verse says, 
meditate on that day and night. Not just, you know, on Sunday mornings or, well, the preacher says you ought to read scriptures, so, okay, got it done. And, and you, really, that's, is that delight? Is that drudgery? Is that something that you realize that is, that is a means of life that you want to live to please God? Or just, well, my dad says I'll do it, so I better, better do it. No. You delight in that, in his law, in his instruction, in his uh, direction. He meditates day and night. This idea of meditating has a lot of different connotations. It's kind of an unusual word in that it has, it's very elastic in many ways. Uh, it can be used to about those who mutter, kind of speak in weird stuff. Isaiah 8 and verse 19, uh, inquire the spiritists, mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. There's our word meditate. They're muttering. They're just kind of mumbling or whatever. Or... Isaiah 59, verse 3, about your tongue muttering unrighteousness, or it can be used to describe a growling lion, or the growl of a lion, or the moaning of a, a swallow, or excuse me, a dove, this is Isaiah 38, verse 14, like a swallow, like a crane, so I chirped, I moan, there's our word meditate, like a dove, my eyes look wistfully to the heights of the Lord, I'm oppressed, be my security. So these different ideas about, what are we talking about, muttering, moaning, growling, we can see... I think more appropriate examples of this, what is he talking about? Uttering words, speaking words. In other words, we have the law of God written for us, but I'm going to speak it to myself. Uh, like the psalm that says, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Well, wait a minute. Who, who are you, who's talking here? I'm talking to myself. You know, get out of the conversation. Why are you so downcast? You're talking to yourself. Put your hope in God. You instruct yourself. Isn't that the best way? I mean, because other people don't know what you're thinking all the time. But you do, sometimes. Hopefully you know what you're talking about. And you can bring the scripture to bear on that present thing. Put your hope in God. You are speaking the word of God to yourself. Ministering, if you don't mind, the word of God to yourself. Uttering truth to yourself. Psalm 35, verse 28 says, My tongue shall utter, utter, there's the word, your righteousness and your praise all day long. That's what I talk about. Your righteousness, your praise. I'm going to utter wisdom. Psalm 37, verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. So we see the idea of speaking. We see even the idea of pondering in our hearts. Proverbs 15, verse 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders, there's our word meditate, ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil things. We see this idea of meditating uh, repeated, for example, in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. What does it mean to meditate? Well, Joshua 1, verse 8 this book of the law, so, and I think there he's specifically speaking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. This book, God says to Joshua after the death of, of Moses, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way successful and then you will be prosperous. We see people meditating, just this thoughts, these thoughts that take over their minds. Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate? They're just contemplating. They're thinking, hmm, we could do that, but no, let's, let's do it this way. Or, well, if they do that, then we'll do that. And it's, it's thinking through this whole thing. So it's not just to uh, uh, open your book and read a couple of verses, maybe a chapter, oh, God forbid, and then close it and then forget about it. Like water off a duck's back, or like James would say, uh, you look at this mirror and then you walk away and you forget what you looked like. What does that help you? How are you meditating on the word of God? Paul, or excuse me, David, and I think it's a David says, where is this one? Oh, there's a psalm that he says, aha, Psalm 119. 
not attributed to David. 148 says, My eyes eagerly greet the night watches that I may muse on your word. It's a different word used there related to this word meditate in, in Psalm 1. But he says, I look forward to the night, you know, the third, third shift, you know, overnight schedule, because then I can muse, I can meditate, I can think about, contemplate, speak to myself, speak out loud even. I can sing psalms and I can listen to sermons, whatever. I can muse on your word. I look forward to it. This is my life. This is my joy. And come back to the Psalm 1 verse 2. In his law, he meditates day and night. By day and by night. And you think, well, good grief. When do you have any rest? Well, why would you want rest from this? This is delightful. This is your joy. This is your satisfaction. This is life itself. And we say, well, I wish I could do something else. What? I know you have to eat. You have to work. You have to love your wife. You have to all these things. But do that after you have meditated on the scripture. Make sure that that is characteristic, as is said of John Bunyan, former, uh, I mean, just tremendous character, author of Pilgrim's Progress and other books as well. But it's said of him, if you pricked him, his blood would flow bibline. In other words, he had so much of the Bible within him. I mean, you bump him and he speaks the Bible. You know, God blesses those who persecute us. Or, you know, what? Good grief. Can't you just not be so Christian after? I mean, just you know, whatever. But this man, this man who is blessed by God, he delights in the law of God. He meditates on this law day and night, and he finds that God himself is appropriate, filling, satisfying. He is that which is life itself. Now, can you imagine? The time has fled, and I have more pages, so we'll have to pick this up next time. But let me give you some applications before we go. This idea of delighting and meditating, it's more than just reading, studying, listening to the Bible, as well as books, sermons, and music about the Bible, though it includes this. Okay, don't, don't say, well, I'm not going to listen to any, any of that Christian stuff because I need to study the Bible. Well, if something points you to the Bible, it's good. Don't turn it off. Don't turn it away. Sermons can point you to the scriptures, so that's good. A delightful meditation is more than memorization. Though it includes that. Okay, meditate. You, how can you meditate on something, especially when you don't have the book in front of you? Well, if you have hidden that in your hearts, if, if you have internalized this thing and you can, and even if you don't know word for word, if you can give an outline of the book of Romans, for example, and you can say, well, he's talking about uh, uh, conscience. Well, that's chapter two. Or he's talking about this peace that we have. Well, that's chapter five. Or you talk about this conflict between uh, being the, the new man and the old man. Well, that's chapter six and seven. Or you want to talk about uh, the example of the Old Testament fathers, well, that's Romans 10. Uh, or you want to talk about, you know, you, you have an idea. You're familiar with the book, in other words. It's kind of like knowing landmarks. You don't need maps anymore. You've got, you know, you know it. It is internalized. So meditating, delighting in God's word, it includes memorization, but it also moves beyond that. It is more even than ministering the word of God to yourself and to others through speech and song. It includes it, of course, meditating, delighting in God's thing. If you don't mind, Delighting, meditating in God's word reminds us of what he said in verse 1. These are the wicked, these are the sinners, these are the scoffers. It's marked by their conduct, what flows out of their doctrine. In other words, it's not just enough to know the good you ought to do. You probably ought to do that. If you know that's the good thing, whether it could be a diet, I know I shouldn't be eating this, but I'm going to go ahead and eat a whole box of it. What? You want to kill yourself? Don't do that. If you know the good you ought to do, do that. First Samuel 15, whole conflict between Saul and Samuel. 
And Saul offered this wonderful sacrifice to God. Oh, we're honoring God. We're doing these things, religious ceremony and so forth. And Samuel says, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. It's a big deal. But we're being ceremoniously religious and stuff. We're doing the right... You are not listening. You're not obeying God's word. You can study, you can meditate, and have all these Bible studies and everything about you. But if you're not obeying the clear instructions of, of the Lord, what basis do you have for anything in your life? What basis for God's pleasure in your... If, if you're not obeying what God is saying... Lest you think, well, you're just making stuff up. That's the Old Testament. New Testament's not like that, right? It's all about grace, grace, grace. Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Well, Jesus, you're being harsh. No, what's this deal? Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? I mean, that's, that's even pompous, if you don't mind. Lord, Lord. One would suffice. You're my Lord, right? I'm going to honor you my Lord. But when we get kind of redundant, we're kind of showing that we're hypocritical. Everyone, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you whom he's like. This is at the end of his Luke, as recorded the Sermon on the Mount. It's very similar in Matthew 7. Here, this is what he's like. He's a man, like a man building a house who dug and went deep and laid a foundation on the rock. When a flood occurred, the river burst against the house and he could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who heard and did not do accordingly like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the river burst against it and immediately collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Hmm, that's quite a picture. I guess we ought to be like that guy who listens to God's word and then does what he says. You can write this down, John 13, verse 17. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And of course, what I alluded to earlier, James 1, uh, beginning verse 21 He says, lay aside all the wickedness and all this stuff. Receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and so forth. James chapter 1. So we want to be very careful. This whole idea of blessedness is not just, well, I guess I can put up with a little discouragement in my life. I guess it's okay if I don't have all of God's blessing in my life. It's all or nothing, if you don't mind my saying Do we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Yes, if you're in faith. Yes, if you're obedient to the Lord. Well, I guess I I don't have all the spiritual blessings, but mm, I kind of taste some things. Well, that kind of reminds us of what Hebrews teaches about those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts and the wonderful things, but they've fallen away because their life was not in them. Or as John, 1 John would say, they went out from us because they were not part of us. If they were part of us, they would have remained in us. And that kind of thing. Where is the perseverance in faith? Where is the obedience to God's word? Where is this kind of trembling? I didn't finish the idea of Josiah, Josiah the king. When the law of God was read before him, he tore his clothes. He hadn't heard this stuff before. And he says, whoa, if that's what God demands of my life and my kingdom, we are, we're going to receive those curses that he spoke about because we are guilty, guilty, guilty. There is this idea then of obedience, meditating, delighting in God's word that would then characterize our life of obedience. We'll see what this looks like next time, Lord willing, in in verses three through following. There is a, a different expectation of how we live in this world, but then what is there to come? 
this judgment that is coming upon all the sons of disobedience and the blessings that come to those who are in Christ. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have shown us your word. We know that we could never fully obey all these things, all these righteous requirements that you put upon us. And yet we want to. We want to now because we have a new heart, one that is sensitive to your will, one who's subject to your rules, something that is um, pliable in your hands, not hard and, and stony like a stony heart. You have given us a new heart in Christ. You've given us your spirit to indwell in us and lead us into not just understanding of what you say, but then being able to do it. It's a mighty power you've given to us. You've given us each other to encourage, to spur toward love and good deeds. You've given us the perseverance of other examples in the in history of the church and, and outside the church, the Old Testament saints who loved you and, and went through all kinds of difficulties in obedience to you, submitting to you. We thank you ultimately for our Lord Jesus Christ who learned obedience through the things that he suffered. We're grateful that he suffered in our stead, even though, I mean, man, we, we should characterize or classify ourselves with the wicked, with the sinful, with the scorners, and yet the scoffers, and yet through Christ we can be forgiven. We can be transferred out of the, that domain of darkness and brought near through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that anybody here who's not in Christ would be trusting you, turn to you, turn away from idolatry, turn away from the way of the wicked and the counsel of the wicked and the, the um, other things, the pathway of the sinners and the seed of the scoffers. We don't want that in our lives. We want your righteousness, your truth to indwell us and to govern our lives. Please help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.